It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 348 for June 23rd, 2013. This week, Windows XP continues, despite its age, to be a very popular operating system. But if you're using Internet Explorer on XP, there are serious shortcomings. Microsoft will soon release a public preview of Windows 8.1. If you're thinking about downloading it, I have some cautions. In short circuits, racing to release information about government data requests, digging up ET, playing with computer relics, now from Instagram videos. Windows XP was a popular version of Windows, so popular in fact that some people are still using it. As of May 2013, nearly 40% of all desktop computers were still running XP, which is slightly less than the combined percentage of computers running Vista, Windows 7, and Windows 8. The rest are running either Apple's OS X or Linux. If you're in that XP group and you're still using Internet Explorer, I gotta tell you, it's time to make at least one change. Later this year, Microsoft will release Internet Explorer 11. Windows XP, though, can't use any version of Internet Explorer later than version 8. And version 8 doesn't support the current language of websites, HTML5. Granted, by using technologies such as Modernizer, people who design websites can provide an acceptable experience for Microsoft's perennially behind-the-curve browser, even for version 8. But there is little reason for XP users to put up with version 8, which was released in 2008 with support that was even well behind the times back then. Explorer 11, which will be provided with Windows 8.1, is expected to provide acceptable support for HTML5 and CSS3 without having to rely on the workarounds generated by Modernizer code. Although version 8 of IE supported some minimal HTML5 functionality and at least recognized version 3 of the cascading stylesheet specification, it wasn't until version 9, released in March 2011, that IE caught up to where browsers such as Chrome and Firefox were back in 2009. Sometimes I wonder why Microsoft even bothers to continue developing Internet Explorer. And although I understand that some computer users accept Explorer because it came with the computer, given the ease of downloading and installing a better browser, I have to wonder why so many people still use IE. Although Chrome has led the way since June 2012, IE is still the second most popular browser in the world. Numbers for Firefox are slowly declining. Safari is popular on Macs. Opera has fans in Europe. But the big three are Chrome, IE, and Firefox. What's strange, and in my view a little sad, is the fact that Internet Explorer is still the leader in the United States, and by a significant margin. Why do so many computer users put up with such a substandard browser? Chrome is catching on and appears to be on track to exceed IE's numbers, probably within the next few months. Firefox use is also declining in the U.S., but slowly. Opera doesn't even show up in U.S. statistics. 
A service called StatCounter reports useful information about the people who visit websites. It's information that website designers can use to determine which features they may safely enable. For example, the browser summary for the United States is on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, but you'll want to take a look around at the site to find some additional information. That's not to say that Firefox or Chrome, either one, is perfect or even close to it. Even the mighty Google doesn't create a browser that's immune from complaints. I often have a lot of browser windows open, so many in fact that I invariably have two browsers open. One instance of Chrome, which overall is faster than Firefox and a bit lighter on system resources, along with one instance of Firefox, and each of them has several tabs open. Chrome, however, insists on placing a close indicator on every single tab. If you have a lot of tabs open, these little X icons take up a lot of usable space. And even worse, they're really easy to click when you're trying to select a tab, so instead of selecting it, you close it. And you can't change it. Google won't let you change it. In fact, this is one of the annoyances that seems to generate a lot of complaints, But, of course, Google knows best, and it won't even consider making it an option. This is why Firefox is my primary browser. By default, Firefox has the same annoying behavior, but it's possible to configure Firefox so that only the current tab has a close button, or so that no tabs have a close button, or so that the close button for the current tab appears over at the far right edge of the screen. That, by the way, was the default behavior when tabs first became available. I've modified Firefox so that none of the tabs has a close bar, and I wish I could do that for Chrome. The process for Firefox is both straightforward and really easy. Just open a new tab and type about, then a colon, and the word config, C-O-N-F-I-G. Put that in the address bar. Then you'll see a search box. So you type browser.tabs.closeButtons with a capital B for buttons. Once you've done that, all you have to do is change the setting to suit your preference. Type a zero if you want a close button on the active tab only. A one, that's the default, puts a close button on all tabs. Two says don't display any close buttons. And three puts a single close button out at the end of the tab strip. That's the Firefox 1.0 behavior. And once you've done that, you're done. You don't even have to restart the browser. The two primary browsers you might want to consider are Firefox and Chrome. Why Firefox? Stability. Multi-platform support. For example, IE doesn't run on Macs, except for an antique version of IE. It's faster. Security's better. There's Moz Backup, which allows you to back up all your settings and either restore them to the same browser on that computer or copy them to another browser. You can sync your settings on multiple machines without Windows 8. And Firefox provides a lot better support for modern standards, HTML5 and CSS3. Or consider Chrome. Why is it better than IE? Speed. Much lower resource requirement. Security. You can sync on multiple machines without Windows 8. Better support for those standards, HTML5 and CSS3. And the ability to protect one tab from others. So if you're an XP user, that's fine. XP is a very good operating system, and if you don't need what Vista or 7 or 8 provide, sticking with XP is fine. Just get yourself a better browser.
On June 26th, Microsoft will make a preview edition of Windows 8.1 available to the general public. If you're using Windows 8, there are some reasons why you might want to download the public preview, but there are also some very good reasons why you might want to wait until the final version is released, and that'll happen later this year. The most significant contraindication, as a pharmaceutical ad might say, is this. If you install the preview version over an existing Windows 8 installation, all installed apps will be deleted. Okay, maybe you can survive that, particularly if you don't use a lot of apps. But the real kick in the head comes when the final 8.1 code is released. Install that over a preview version, and you'll lose all of your apps once again. Ah, but that's not all. Any installed desktop applications... Those are going to be removed, too. So if you have a computer that you use for testing, the public preview might be a worthwhile download. Not that you'd ever install a preview application on a production machine, but maybe you have a second computer that has a lot of applications on it, but still isn't your primary production computer. Maybe you'd want to try the preview version there. But if you'd prefer not to go through the hassle of reinstalling all your Metro apps twice and reinstalling all of your desktop applications, just wait. Those who upgrade from the release version of Windows 8 to the release version of Windows 8.1 won't have to reinstall everything. So I'm not going to be installing the preview version on any computer. But by virtue of a TechNet membership, I do expect to have access to the release to manufacturing code, perhaps four to six weeks before it becomes generally available. And once I have that, I'll be able to upgrade an existing computer that contains many existing Metro and desktop applications. And then I'll be able to let you know how well it performs. But to some extent, we do know what's coming. Picking through the tea leaves scattered around on various Microsoft blogs, here's some of what's in store. Some companies allow employees to attach their own devices to the corporate network. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I think it's a bad thing, it is a reality, and Windows 8 will address that. The operating system will allow employees' devices to fit somewhere between devices that have joined a domain and those that have not. Given the company's policies, certain privileges can be granted to those midway devices. If you use your own Windows 8.1 device both inside and outside the office, a special work folders area makes it possible to synchronize data between the portable device and corporate assets. Again, the IT staff has to determine whether this is a good idea or not. And again, I would say it is not. Mobile device management will allow those who use mobile devices on a corporate LAN to provide a consistent look and feel across all of their devices. This is essentially an extension of the existing synchronization option for Windows 8 computers. Other changes make it possible to publish access to corporate resources and maintain security by means of a multi-factor authentication scheme. Improve the Virtual Desktop Infrastructure, or VDI, on Windows Server 2012 systems, and you also get the ability to print directly to a Wi-Fi-enabled printer. Virtual Private Networks, VPNs, will have better support both on standard Windows devices and those running Windows RT. There will be improved power savings for those using mobile broadband. When Windows 8 was launched, broadband access used radios that were separate components within the computer's case. And that took a toll on battery life. Windows 8.1 will support radios that are integral parts of the hardware. 
Metro apps will follow users with Windows to go. Whether you buy an app or use a free app from the Windows Store, the app may be configured to appear on any number or all of your computers. To mitigate some of the concerns raised by attaching personal devices to corporate resources, Windows 8.1 will offer remote business data removal. Corporate IT staff will be able to control corporate data on personal devices, encrypt it, or even delete it. Of course, that would require an internet connection. Windows 8.1 will have better biometric identification, optimized for fingerprint-based biometrics, and it will include a standard fingerprint enrollment experience that will work with a variety of readers. Yes, I am quoting Microsoft there. Microsoft says the new readers will include a liveliness detection, and they say that will prevent spoofing of fingerprints with a silicon copy, or presumably with a finger severed from the owner's hand. Sorry about that. Windows 8.1 brings improved data encryption. Full device encryption that has been used on RT devices and the Windows 8 phone will now be available for desktop and notebook systems, and it will be enabled by default. Microsoft says that data on any connected standby device will also be automatically encrypted. For those who still insist on using Internet Explorer, version 11 will be included. Web pages should load faster, and settings such as favorites and tabs can be shared across all of your Windows 8.1 computers. Microsoft says that IE 11 will be more resistant to malware. Microsoft's antivirus and anti-malware application Windows Defender will gain network behavior monitoring, and that's going to provide better detection for less known malware variants. And finally, users will be able to boot directly to the desktop instead of having to stop at the Metro interface. This is apparently important to some people. And as you already know, a quasi-start button will return to needlessly clutter the screen. The key, of course, will be how well all of these new, improved, modified, and updated features work. I won't be able to discuss that until I've had time to work with version 8.1, so stay tuned. In short circuits, high-tech companies seem to be engaged in yet another race, this one to see who can release the most information the fastest about which government agencies have asked for information and what they've provided. Take Google's request to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA Court, as one example of the trend. Google, the company that has more information about you and me than the FBI, the CIA, the KGB, Mossad, MI6, and Smirsh combined now wants to tell us what those various lesser agencies are asking for. Prior to asking the FISA court for permission to spill the beans, Google did make similar requests to the director of the FBI and the director of national intelligence. Facebook, Yahoo, Microsoft, and Apple all have requested permission to divulge information about their requests, and they have been granted that permission. And they have, in fact, released information describing the requests. Google, on the other hand, has since 2010 released annual reports detailing government requests for information. The new request from Google says that it has a right under the First Amendment to publish information about the number of requests submitted and the number of accounts that the requests affect. When Apple released its report, the company noted that it does not provide information to the government when certain of its products are used. Apple's iMessage and FaceTime chat services are examples. The information isn't provided because the services are encrypted. 
And Apple says it doesn't release information about the use of Apple Maps or requests to the virtual assistant, Siri, because information about those services is not retained in a way that can be linked to specific people. Apple says it has handled four to 5,000 requests for customer data and that those requests affect nine to 10,000 accounts. Those numbers reflect requests from all government agencies during the six months ending in May. Now, if that seems a bit vague, it is, by design. Companies were given permission to release the information, but they were told that they must list requests in blocks of 1,000, and that requests from all federal, state, and local government agencies must be included along with the FISA requests. So as a result, it's unclear how many requests were made on the grounds of national security, and how many were filed by local police who might have been trying to find a missing person. According to Apple, the most common kinds of requests it receives are from local police agencies. Google sees the issue as one of public relations and says that it has been forthcoming as it legally can be and that it is now asking for additional permission from the government in the interest of repairing what it terms harm to its reputation caused by false or misleading media reports. Facebook, Microsoft, and Yahoo have all issued similarly vague reports about government information requests. Facebook reported 9 to 10,000 requests in the six months ending in December. Microsoft said it had 6 to 7,000 requests during that same period. Yahoo says that it handled 12 to 13,000 requests in the six months ending in May. Almogordo, New Mexico. That's where E.T. went to die. Not the space alien, but the Atari game based on the movie. Thirty years ago, Atari had released a computer game, but nobody wanted it. And Atari apparently decided to dump the games in a landfill. That landfill just happened to be in Almogordo. Beneath the dirt is concrete. Beneath the concrete, there are thousands or millions, maybe, of E.T. game cartridges. Maybe. The landfill is where an Air Force base used to be. The state's Museum of Space History dumped its trash there in the 1980s. Some of the trash might have been E.T. games that nobody wanted. So why did nobody want them? Gamers at the time characterized the game as possibly the worst game of all time. But now, somebody thinks there's a market for the worst game of all time. If they're there. And there's some question about that. Snopes.com says it has found no proof that the game cartridges are there, at least not in the millions. But some local residents have reported extracting ancient games from the landfill. The game was churned out in just five weeks so that it could be on sale in time for Christmas shopping season 1982. Atari paid more than $20 million for rights to use the E.T. character. And that's back in the days when $20 million was a fair chunk of change. The game was bad, but even so, more than 5 million copies sold. However, half of those were returned for a refund, and now they're rumored to be the ones in the New Mexico landfill. Pac-Man cartridges might be there too. Atari managed to make more of those games than the number of consoles that existed. So those games could be buried there too, or not. 
A Los Angeles company, Fuel Entertainment, believes that something is there, and they've obtained permission to excavate the Almogordo landfill between now and the end of the year. If Fuel Entertainment finds something, you can bet you'll be hearing more about it, and probably on late-night TV infomercials. Oh, by the way, speaking about antiques, an account by Mike Cassidy in the San Jose Mercury News this week about Steve Wozniak and five Apple I computers probably will make you smile. About 50 Apple I computers probably still exist, and one of them recently sold for $671,400. Now keep in mind, this is a computer with less computing power than the average digital clock. Cassidy's story, and you'll find a link to that story from the TechBiter Worldwide website, describes a visit by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak to History San Jose. He went there to see five of the remaining Apple I computers. In Cassidy's words, It was a little like having Stradivari over to your house to make sure your violin is in tune, or having Rembrandt stop by to touch up that painting on your wall. But there was Steve Wozniak on Tuesday standing over a table of five rare Apple I computers at History San Jose, regaling a small crowd with war stories. Although other personal computers existed before Wozniak and Jobs put the Apple I on sale, the Apple I was the first device that was affordable, even if not very useful. There was no keyboard, no mouse, not even a case. It was just a circuit board, standard green. And hobbyists had to provide a power supply, a monitor, and a keyboard. And what about a mouse? (laughs) Sorry, they hadn't been invented yet. So why was Woz at the museum? I'll let Cassidy tell you that part. Word had spread that History San Jose was going to attempt to boot up its machine. Wendell Sander, a brilliant engineer known as the father of the Apple III, agreed to bring his. Alan Baum, a high school friend of Waz and a former Apple employee, brought his, too. Apple I owner Andy Jong, a Berkeley computer store owner with early Apple ties, thought, why not? And Waz himself grabbed his on the way out the door, too. So now you're wondering, did they work? Well, if you want to find out... You'll just have to follow the link that I've provided on the TechBiter Worldwide website and read Cassidy's story. You'll find some videos of the event, too, on the Mercury News website. And I've borrowed one of the videos for the TechBiter Worldwide website. Instagram, the company that made a fortune by making it possible for people to use a smartphone camera to create images that looked like they were taken by $5 cameras from the 1950s, plans to branch out. Now you can create and upload Instagram videos. The company is now part of Facebook and has about 100 million users. Instagram says the video project has been in development for the past two years, and numerous rumors about its imminent release have surfaced over the past several weeks, so it was announced officially on Thursday. The Instagram video offering will go head-to-head with the competing Vine video service from Twitter. Vine claims 13 million users. The ubiquity of cameras that can also capture video 
is the driving force behind both of these services, as well as video services such as Vidi and SocialCam. And, of course, there are established video sources such as YouTube and Vimeo. When measured in Internet time, where a few weeks can seemingly be the equivalent of a year in real time, Facebook could be seen as arriving to the scene just a bit too late. So far, when it comes to replicating the popularity of Instagram for video users, Twitter's Vine appears to have the lead. Vine's videos are limited to six seconds. Vidi, on the other hand, allows 30 seconds. Now, by those standards, a three-minute video featuring Maru on YouTube would seem like a feature-length film. If Facebook tries to incorporate video into its already overburdened interface, it runs the risk of alienating users, and younger users to some extent are already shunning Facebook. The new video features are available right now on Apple and Android phones. Videos can be 15 to 30 seconds in length compared to Vine's 6 seconds. The Instagram app will look much as it always has, but now users will need to choose between a single shot or a video. And, of course, there are filters, 13 of them so far. You can convert the video to black and white, you can blur it, you can change the brightness. Oh, and there's also cinema mode. It will attempt to eliminate the jiggles that usually occur when you have a handheld camera. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.